Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services and also information on our forthcoming events. For now though, let's get on with the show. Welcome to this week's episode. Today we hear from Richard North, co-founder and CEO of Wow Stuff, whose innovative toys are sold in major retailers around the globe, from Hamleys in London to Walmart in the US. Recent awards include the 2020 Global Toy of the Year for the Harry Potter Invisibility Cloak. Yes, you heard that right, an invisibility cloak. Along the journey, Richard has either founded or co-founded and exited successfully several companies in a variety of different sectors. In 2010, he also appeared on an episode of The Secret Millionaire. Clearly, Richard has a passion for the toy industry, as you'll hear during the course of our conversation, and I thought it'd be fascinating to get his perspective on this sector. But my intrigue to interview Richard was really caught by a LinkedIn post that he made recently about a terrible car accident he had in 2001 that saw him counting from 0 to 10 and back again just to stay alive. That moment naturally changed Richard's life profoundly and his portrayal of how he worked through his injuries and overcame some severe obstacles in both life and business meant I was intrigued to sit down and have this conversation with him. I hope you'll be inspired by Richard's story and intrigued and fascinated by his passion for his industry as I was. Welcome, Richard, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you, Warren. Nice to be here. It's going to be great having this conversation with you because I'm fascinated. I suppose I'm a big kid at heart and I'm fascinated to talk to you about the toy industry and learn more about the toy industry. But I suppose when we get on to that and you're covering business wow stuff, we'll probably talk about when that started. But pre-starting that, you'd been successful, you'd been entrepreneurial, but then there was a car accident, wasn't there, in 2001, which transformed and changed your life, I suppose, and led you in this direction. So if you don't mind, Richard, I'd kind of like to start there. And I know it's a dark, deep place to probably start a conversation, but let's kick off with, tell our listeners a little bit about what happened to you in 2001, please. Sure. Um... Well, I was coming home from work. Uh, I had a business, an e-commerce business that I'd set up um, over the previous three years. Um, sort of, this was the beginning of the uh, the internet e-commerce era, and uh, it was full-on, very intensive type of business. We were growing very quickly, um, and sort of at that time, my life was full-on with work. And, and trying to build this business. And I had a, had a super family, uh, had two kids, uh, married, lived in the Midlands, Wolverhampton. And 
with my success. I had a few toys, I had a nice Porsche sports car. I'm coming home okay. one evening, and as I came round a bend, I, I used to come round every every day coming back from work. The car, uh, the steering was the first thing I noticed, went like jelly. And I wasn't going that, that fast. It was about 35 miles an hour. What I hadn't realized was I was on a, a bit of an oil slick. So there'd been an oil spillage. Okay. And the car spun and crashed. Wow. But it's not quite as simple as that, is it, Richard? <laughs> that underestimates the story somewhat. Well, um, I, as, it, as it spun, I remember... I, I don't actually share. I can't. I don't know whether I've actually shared this at all. Actually, what I'm going to say next. I, I know you picked up on my LinkedIn post, um, but the detail of what actually happened, I've never really shared. So the car spun, and as it happened, you've heard that story where people say their lives flashed in front of them mm. or everything slowed down. Well, it did slow down as the car spun, and it probably only spun for four or five seconds maximum before impacting into a, a lamppost side on. But it did feel like slow motion. And it <laughs> sounds a bit crude, but the word that went through my mind as it happened was the F word. You know, I knew I was in a whole heap of trouble. Something was going to come. Yeah, something, yeah, wherever it was going to end up, it wasn't going to look good. It wasn't going to be good. And yeah, so it spun and I hit the lamppost side on I had a soft top car and the car just wrapped around that lamppost like a banana um, wow. and the, I remember that the impact was immense was a was I, I don't know whether I can remember hearing the bang but more felt the bang and the first thing I remember in those early seconds was looking down at my lap the steering wheel, as I looked down, was 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 almost in my lap, but so was the lamppost. So the lamppost was directly in front of me. My legs were broken clean through. They were still attached to my torso, but they were broken clean through and, and, and wrapped mm. around the lamppost. And I could see the sole of my foot. doesn't sound very nice. Um, and extreme pain then followed. Mm. Yeah. And then... What effect did that, that then have on the business, on your life? Well, as, as I sat there, I was, I was lucky enough that a friend came along uh, within a minute or two and, uh, and, and contacted and said, look, I'll contact your wife. Ambulance is on its way and so on. And what flashed through my mind was, okay, I've lost my legs. And I suppose my positive spirit took over. And I've always been somebody who tries to look on the bright side of things, if there was one in that at that moment, but uh, just to keep me fighting, I, I, the positivity was: well, even if I lose my legs, um, I'll, I'll, I'll have a wheelchair and I can adapt it to hold a laptop, and I can therefore still work. I still have my wife. I still have my two kids. My wife was actually pregnant with our third, and uh, eight months pregnant at the time. So I was thinking of these kind of positive things and. The other the thing that I mentioned in my um, LinkedIn post was at 10 more seconds. So as the pain became so extreme, I also became extremely tired. And the paramedic, paramedic sat by me in the, in, the, in the crumpled bits of the car. They couldn't cut me out. They were 
trying everything to try and get my, my body out. My legs tra- were trapped in some metal. And they brought an acetylene torch to cut my legs off because they uh, didn't think they were going to be able to get me out alive and it was a last-ditch effort. But a, a fireman, like out of a movie, a huge fireman, like a bodybuilder type, decided yeah. to have one last go. And, and I'm getting really tired. The paramedics, uh, I heard us say, his, his heartbeats dropped to 18 beats a minute. He's going. He's only got a few seconds left. And I thought to myself, 10 more seconds. I'll hold on for 10 more seconds. So I actually didn't count down. I didn't count up to 10. I counted down from 10. So I would go in my mind. I'd say, stay awake, stay awake. That was in my mind. And I'd go 10, 9, 8, 7. And every time I got to zero, I'd think 10 more seconds. I can just last 10 more seconds before I fall asleep, which I guess, you know, I believe that meant that that would be it. So I'd count and count and count. And, you know, one minute, five minutes, 20 minutes later, I'm still there. And then an hour and 20 minutes, they get me out. They put me in the ambulance and they they take me into the hospital where um, where my life, yeah, really did change from that moment. You know, I, yeah. I, I went into hospital, the doctors came over and, and one of the doctors, he said, I'm going to straighten your legs and then I'm going to inject you with morphine. And the moment that you, the morphine hits, uh, within certainly a few seconds, you won't feel any pain. He was right. I mean, the pain when he straightened my legs was unbelievable. But but when he injected me, within a few seconds, I couldn't feel anything. And I, I felt as if I could have just gone back to work there and there. That was the, the, the difference. But but what kept me fighting more than anything else was when he said, I asked him, do you, do you think you'll be able to save my legs? And he said, I'm going to save your legs. You will walk again. And wow. that was amazing. And within six weeks, he promised me. That was the inspiration. Wow. And is that what happened within six weeks? Were you walking again? I wouldn't call it walking. (laughs) (laughs) He was certainly my inspiration in that that moment and and for over those next few weeks. But um, yeah, in that six weeks, I was on a Zimmer frame. So on about the sixth week, um, they pushed me to the side of the bed and they helped me stand up and I felt faint because I hadn't stood up obviously for that period. Uh, and then they sat, back, sat me back down. Eventually managed to grab hold of the Zimmer frame. And if you can call it walking, yeah, I moved forward a few paces um, and then just set about trying to focus on my recovery and um, yeah, the, the and uphill soon climb. full recovery was a number of years. didn't happen overnight. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I was on crutches for, uh, I don't know, six months, nine months, um, and then was able to walk with a very bad limp. My muscles had wasted away. I couldn't, the, I'd got metal pins, which I still have in my femurs, and my, my hand had been broken, my pelvis had been split in two as well. So there's lots of different bits that we're having to recover and we're recovering at their own pace. But after about a year and a half, I started to get depressed because I wasn't exercising and I'd always done exercise. I was big into my karate. Okay. So yeah, got, got, got quite depressed. And how did you, up until that point, you got depressed. That's, a, you know, that resilience must've been kicking in and that, that positivity that perhaps you had at that moment of impact kicked in. How do you think you, you know, sustained it for that long? And how do you think people that do have those kind yeah. of incidents in their life can, build that resilience well you know it definitely wasn't a one-man show it wasn't it wasn't because i was extraordinarily strong or or brilliant at being positive it was 
because I had a fantastic wife who was totally devoted to me. And I got two kids to very much live for as well, you know, to, mm. you know, I did not want to be a father that couldn't do things with them as they grew up because they were very young, you know, four or five years old. So uh, that kept me focused and thinking, right, you know, I've got to find a way somehow to get through this brick wall of depression, you know, by going over it, under it, round it or through it. You know, it's a saying I've used a lot of times in, in, in when I've met when I've met business obstacles. So I went to the doctors and I told him how depressed I was feeling because I couldn't do any exercise and I couldn't walk around very freely. You know, terrible limp and you know, like I say, wasting away in terms of my muscle mass. And uh, the doctor said try swimming. And I'd only mm-hmm. ever swum when I was a, a kid at school. And but I took it up, and that was the start of my physical recovery and the support of my wife, my family, my mum, my dad, my parents, and all my friends. Uh, are really, all of that together, with a positive spirit, positive attitude, and and a business also to to have to make sure it worked. Um, mm. Otherwise, we we had nothing to support us. Yeah. You know, made made me resilient, I suppose resilient and gave you focus didn't you do you ever look back now about how your life may have been different if the accident hadn't occurred wow wow um i don't you know that's the first time i've uh, i've ever been asked that question i mean i don't normally talk about this accident and um no. it's quite interesting since i did the post i was i was going to write that post a year ago and something stopped me. In fact, I did write it a year ago, but never posted it. And I only posted it recently. But I've never take, I've never, never really thought how things could have been. But I suppose that's because I've gone through life, like most people, with all sorts of opportunities and problems and obstacles to overcome. So I just see it as another, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I'm alive. So rather than yeah. I'm thinking, oh, that was bad luck, well, it was more good luck that I'm alive. And I think that's probably my demeanour generally. And so I expect life to be a roller coaster, and it's just how you deal with yeah. it. That's, that's probably a good definition of resilience, isn't it, actually? You know, as we, as we move on now and talk a bit about, you know, wow stuff and your journey there, I mean, that probably does sum up resilience, doesn't it? Is recognising that life is a roller coaster and it's not a smooth journey and you're going to hit challenges and hurdles it's how you accept and overcome those and how you find I think you alluded to it earlier it's how you find the solutions isn't it and how you analyze that and how you just take the first step forward it's a state of mind isn't it you know if you look at people who are successful in life whether it be with their families uh, you know with their friendships or with their their work it invariably comes down to a state of mind they don't necessarily possess smarts that are over and above the next person you know they're not necessarily more intelligent it is more to do as i've found over and over again with the state of mind you know uh, positivity uh hunger you know those kinds of things yeah hunger drive and positivity definitely but in you know 2006 you founded wow stuff with some other individuals i mean you 
talk about the fact you're, you know, kind of in those early days of e-commerce. How did you come across the toy industry? What drew, drew you into the toy industry? Complete chance. So I'd had two previous companies before the internet business, and I, I was lucky enough, maybe naive almost, that as I was building them, I didn't know what the the ceilings were. The okay. um, I didn't know what where other people might have looked at the business I was setting up and said, oh, that can't work and this won't work and uh, don't do that. You know, when you're young and you haven't got experience, it's sometimes a good thing. So you have a go at stuff and you might do it slightly yeah. differently. But that slight change that you've made has made it work on something that hasn't yeah. worked for other people before. So that's great. So I built this business when people said, well, you'll need loads more cash than you've got. You'll need more collaboration collaborations than you've got, partnerships. Um, but, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know, went for it, built it. And so I built two businesses and sold those. And then the internet business came along, the e-commerce business. I, uh, I That was the first time I'd done direct-to-consumer, so so retail, if you like, okay. inspired by another very successful entrepreneur whose book I'd read, uh, who was a retailer, and he'd done incredibly well. And I loved uh, his mantras. I loved his uh, processes. When I got into retail, I realized I wasn't the detail person that you need to be in retail. And I knew I wasn't a natural born retailer. So after exiting the e-commerce business, I wanted to get back to some kind of um, B2B type business. So I started importing gifts and branding them up into licensed brands. So the Science Museum was one of our first brands, museum in London, uh, that was quite well known. And we did some educational entertainment type gifts. That led us to do Doctor Who products and Top Gear products, so licensed branded products. And it was really um, also uh, formed as a business through a chance meeting with two scientists. So I'd sold up, I'd recovered from my accident, I'd gone back to Karate, 2006, I'm thinking, what shall I do next? I've made a bit of money. So I was fairly relaxed and chilled with the world. And I was at a, okay. a gift fair and I met two scientists who were inventors really by by nature. And they showed me one of their inventions. And I thought, well, I've got a bit of money. I love their attitude. Uh, I love the fact they come from environmental sciences. They, they had an inner desire to to be a change in the world uh, longer term and I thought you know purpose-driven I like that um, and I thought I'll back them you know I've got some cash I'll back them so that's how we formed our stuff so as I say Science Museum was our first license then Top Gear and BBC and that eventually after four or five years of very fast growth took us into the toy industry. Wow and it's interesting in life and in your business journeys generally serendipity you know, meeting chance meetings, how they really impact on your life. Yeah, you know, Warren, that that sums a lot of it all up, the, the serendipity, the chance meetings. Maybe you do make your own chances um, that, that are that thing we call serendipity. But you have to be out there. You have to have a positive outlook. You have to connect with people and... The more people you connect with, you don't see it necessarily at the time as there being anything more to it than a casual meeting, a drink with somebody, uh, bumping into somebody at a business event. 
And then maybe a year or two goes by and you find you've got something in common or they call you up and they say, oh, you're the guy in toys. I've met this other guy over here. He's got this interesting project and so on. And, and, and these dots start to get linked up. And yeah, uh, I would say that the, as I've got older, I've therefore got more and more contacts. And as I've got more and more contacts, I've been able to do more and more deals and achieve more things. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? But you, it is about that, isn't it? It's about going and building the relationships and being very open-minded. And um, I suppose in the early days of your business career, you you don't often get that. Some people do and they succeed very quickly, I think. But if you, you start to try and see the pound in everything. Yeah. My, my own story would be when I stopped trying to see the pound in everything and saw the opportunity in everything, that's when things start to connect and that's where things start to happen. That's Do you a, agree with that? That's, a, that's an interesting uh, analogy, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I guess you're saying, you know, when you meet somebody or you look at an opportunity, where's the money in this? And that can be a bit short-sighted. Yeah, because contacts, like I say, don't sometimes come good in terms of them leading to a business opportunity for months, quite often years ahead. So uh, it's it's interesting you say that that point as well about when you're you know starting out, you're not really you haven't got the contacts. There's um, one of my family members, uh, my son-in-law. He's only a young guy, twenty-seven. He's one of the most connected people I think I've ever met. Now, just to um, uh, perhaps explain that a little bit more. So we live in a small town uh, um, in, in Shropshire. There isn't a person in the town I don't think he doesn't know. <laughs> and it's not because he ever saw a pound in anybody else. He never saw these networks, these people, as opportunities to make money. He was just yeah. a naturally nice, outgoing person that loved communicating with people, understanding their stories. But now, 27, so he's grown up here all his life, and now at 27, many of these people are his business yeah. clients because he's a financial advisor. He never thought they were, that, that that yeah. was the route it was going to go down. And because he's got such history, they know him and they trust him. Yeah, important, isn't it? Definitely. And just going back to something you said earlier, which was quite interesting, because, you know, wow stuff, 2006, those early years, you said you got into that business because it felt like at the time because of the two scientists a business with purpose now that's you know that's quite a well-coined phrase now in the last couple of years you know b corps all of that business with purpose there's books being written on it do you think do you think you knew you're doing it because of purpose at the time or now when you reflect it was about the purpose i definitely didn't know it at the time um yeah, and I do. I'm an avid reader of business books and uh, uh, looking at, at, at new business mantras that might appear in existing ones. And like you say, you know, purpose has become a big thing. I suppose in my very early years, when I was a salesman at the age of 20, I chanced upon some books to do with marketing, specifically advertising. And that's when I learned about USPs. And that's probably the early signs of purpose. That Those in those times, obviously, unique selling proposition was was more about what what is the feature about this particular product that means people will buy it more than any other feature. But as, as we're talking about purpose, as we get uh, into this new age, 
the USP with so many businesses is going to become, you know, uh, to do with um, the environment, um, being eco-friendly with your product, um, or doing well for others, uh, being charitable. You know, the humanity has risen to the surface. Uh, it's it kind of went away through. Uh, the crass eighties, if you like, where it was all about money, which was quite yeah. shallow, um, and and it seems to be coming coming back round now to things that that are all about humanity and life, humanity and values. values yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So your the wow stuff is all about, if I understand it correctly, is you are innovative in kind of the toys and things that you look to make, and then you find a brand to license that too is that right or is it more that you, you could get the license for something and then you find the solution which way does it work? it kind of can work both ways so okay. we're a bunch of uh, i suppose about 60 people um of which about a dozen of them are in product development we we worked with licensed brands probably because it was easy to look at a brand like harry potter where We've, we were already instilled with lots of information about what the brand's about, and what the characters are about, and um, what the themes are about. So as a group of product developers, you're handed um, a piece of intellectual property with lots of knowns. And so it speeds up our product development process. We can look at that and say, okay, well, it's about wizards. What do wizards do? They, they cast spells. Okay, and what do they do? How do they do that? They use a wand. Okay, so we know what the product is. We know what the uh, the purpose of the product is, and we know that it's got a huge following. So all of those things are already got box boxes ticked. All we have to do now is create a wand that the target consumer will want. If you go from the other position of are we an innovation business first and foremost, and do we look at innovation first and then find a brand? Well. If we, if we do do that, sometimes we can apply that innovation to a brand. Sometimes, you know, someone in the, in the organization will come up with an idea for a product without any view on, on the application to a brand. It will just be, I've thought of a brilliant toy idea. You know, what do you yeah. think? And, and we might say, you know, that can be a standalone product. And we, you know, and we live for innovation. We live for that moment when a kid gets one of our toys and the first thing they say when they look at it, play with it, you know, interact with it, is wow. Because that yeah. takes me back to a time in my childhood that we've all had, and we, you know, where yeah, absolutely. you have a toy and, you know, it's Christmas Day. You've wanted maybe that toy. You, sometimes you know what the toy is going to be. You're hoping, you don't know which box maybe it's going to be in with the wrapping and you rip it apart. There it is. And you've just so prayed for it. You've dreamt about it and you rip that packaging off and it's there and you're just wow and that memory and then playing with it and role playing with it can live with you and 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 often does if it's that memorable a product if it was that that wanted at that time it sticks with you forever well into adulthood and fun becomes a fundamental memory doesn't it? yeah one of your really fun and fun and everything about that memory is fun and and enjoying it so where do you go with the toy industry now though because is there not the challenge that kids of today they've got their devices they're in front of them they're distracted by online games you know all of your 
from what I can see, all of your products are very tactile. Some of them are very educational, but they're very hands-on. You know, they've got technology in them, but they're traditional toys. Is there a challenge for you as a business that how do you stay current and how do you put product out there that, you know, people continue to play with? Well, I think if you look back at the last sort of 100, 150 years um, of of, um, commerce and industrialization, those businesses that adapted um, continued and uh, quite often those that, that, that didn't to the new circumstances or to new technology um, eventually died. Uh, we don't want to be <laughs> one of the ones that dies. We don't want to be a Kodak. Yeah, exactly. That's a great <laughs> example, isn't it? So we embrace new technology and and look at it and think, how can we use that to make a richer play experience with a toy? And you know, you talk about screened devices. Yes, that's pulling a lot of the available time, leisure time, downtime that a kid has that may have been previously given to a physical toy. You know, so they're now looking at screens. So what we're doing is we're looking at those, uh, the content that those kids are viewing and saying, okay, there's a correlation here with the uh, the enjoyment and the uh, the following the kid has for that piece of content, can that translate into a physical form? Can you know? Will they buy toys off the back of that content? And uh, good examples could be Roblox, the, um, the the online portals that you know have got all these games and games being developed all the time, uh, and, and has huge you know billions of kids, sorry, hundreds of millions of kids following it and enjoying those games. So so we would look at something like that and say, okay, that game there has got terrific following. Is it could, could it be made into a toy range? Is it toyetic? Could we do collectibles from it? Other areas could be where technology has moved forward so fast, um, such as blockchain, uh, mm-hmm. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. So these digital images that are verified as being unique and authentic if you own it. Well, could we do a physical version of that? You know, so So all the time, Whilst things do change and the kids get pulled away from using traditional toys in a traditional manner, how do we adapt, change, and move with it? Yeah, and yeah, how do you not just yeah, stay stay stagnant? I suppose. What I'm also really interested in is, you know, your successful owner managed, you know, entrepreneurial business, and you work with these big brands and the license. I mean, do you ever feel like the minnow? And Goliath, you know, David and Goliath type scenarios, and surely that must come with some legal ramifications and challenges from time to time. You know, my goodness, before I got into toys, I didn't realise there could be an industry as good and as bad. Um, <laughs> you know, because I mean, yeah, we're, we, the good bit is that you know we're in we're in toys, and you know, toys are fun, and uh, toys make you smile, and you know, like we were saying before, they create fantastic memories. But the bad. Is it's a it's an industry where the products themselves, ninety nine percent of them, um, are are designed, developed, and come from a simple idea that somebody somewhere had. They are able then to put that idea into into making it into a physical product. They have it manufactured, often in the Far East, you know, China, uh, so it's built at the right price. And they get early sales that take off and they think, right, I'm in business. And then somebody comes along and says, 
well, there's no patent on that. It's not really protected. It's a great idea. I'm, I'm already set up. I've already been making toys for a while. It's easy for me to copy it. And I also know more retailers than this guy over here who came up with the original idea. So then they flood the market. They make a quick buck. Right. And, and they're gone before you know it. That's happened to us on a few occasions. But when it first happened, I was shocked how fast, aggressive, these copycat companies could be and how little protection you have. And you certainly don't get any governmental protection. You know, you have to do it um, through, you know, uh, other civil means, you know, going to, to lawyers and engaging with them and paying them a fortune to try and protect your your rights, the rights that you might have. And incredible experience. Uh, we've had several incredible experiences in, in that sense. Yeah. And I suppose you just got to fight your corner, but that must be something that's quite... I mean, I met you for the first time as we switched on to record this episode. So, but already I can see you're, you know, man with principles, values, and integrity. And then when you see that, and you're in an industry that lacks values and integrities, does that not drag you down at times? Well, the industry doesn't doesn't lack the um, the integrity, but certain people in it do, and it is like anything. I suppose it's, it's like it's any a, other industry yeah, in that regard, isn't it? It's it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a very tiny percentage. But that tiny percentage, you know, um, for instance, the, they say the global toy industry is worth about $80 billion in sales. And if you get a super, mega, fabulous hit toy on your hands, you could be selling hundreds of millions of dollars worth of product. And it's scalable because these factories, you know, it's not too difficult for them to make 10,000 pieces a week or... A million pieces a week of a product mm. you know they just build bring in more uh, workers um, extend more production lines and you know the, the, the machines that do the molding and the, you know just pumping the product out plastic product out you know really really quickly so you if somebody comes up with an idea and it gets copied and the market's big enough these copycats can do a hundred million dollars two hundred million dollars steal that market share very quickly and, and move on to something else. Um, but fighting those people, when I, with my first product, it was a helium filled, our first big product, I should say, uh, 12 years ago, it was a helium filled balloon in the shape of a shark and in the shape of a clownfish. So it was four feet long, two and a half, three feet wide at its middle. And because it was helium filled, it had new, neutral buoyancy, so it would kind of float in the air. So four, five, six feet from the ground, it would just sit there floating. It had a tail on it, and you had a remote control handset with two joysticks. Okay. And if you wiggled the oh, joysticks, I'll never go at that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and it, yeah, it was a, it was a fun fun toy. We showed it to Toys R Us when they existed in America. They loved it. You know, we flew it around their offices just by waggling the joysticks. The tail would look like this, like it, like you can imagine a shark swimming through water. But, of course, it swam through air. So we called it air, yeah. air swimmers. And they loved it. And they bought a quarter of a million pieces on their initial order. And then they came back for a lot more. Within six months, the market was being flooded by copycats out of China, retailers that, that, are still, that still exist today that will go and buy our, our, uh, our, you know, our consumer products from you know, so I thought, well, I've been a successful businessman. I've, I've, you know, my previous companies, I've got a bit of money. 
this is unfair, this is wrong, I'm going to sue them. So I started issuing, you know, lawsuits against these copycats. And then I realized what that world was all about. You know, winning is good defensive PR if you if you win. That's what's good for marketing because yeah. it, it warns other people off. It says, look, these people will fight if you copy their PR, so stay away from yeah, any of their products. Don't play with them. Yeah. Go play with somebody Go play else. Go play with somebody else. So it's, like, it's like the burglar alarm in the front of the house and the one next door to you doesn't have one, so the visible one stays unburgled, as it were. So yeah. um, it, it works from that point of view, but you'll always lose more than when you began, You know, even if you win, because yeah. you're going to lose a huge amount of time um, yeah. uh, you, and your colleagues are, and you're going to lose most of the money even when you win. You're, you're not going to recover all of your costs. You're not going to recover uh, as much as the, they'll pay you damages. You won't, you won't get it all. And also, quite a lot of those companies are, are very smart at this and they do it. You know, they're, they're professionals at it. You know, so, you know, even when you win, you try and get the money out of them, even when the court yeah. orders them to pay, you know, so... That just starts another legal battle. Yeah, it can be a, it can be a period victory. But the, the best one we had was against Silicon Valley-backed business uh, that had raised $275 million. And um, we came out with an artificial intelligence race car set. So if you can imagine Scalextric, but without the yeah. slot in the middle. So this car was um, battery-powered, artificial intelligence, had sensors in the base, and it could read the track. So it knew where it was on the track, and then you could turn it this way, that way. You had all sorts of uh, gaming experiences. It was almost like a video game, but in real life. The handset would had a, a loudspeaker in it, and it would say, oh, you've hit, you've hit an oil spill, and then the car would react accordingly and so on. Fantastic product. And uh, a company in um, America that had this $275 million invested in them, they created something totally in parallel that was almost identical, except that the patents were very different. And as our lawyer said at the time, when they launched theirs and we launched ours, we thought at first they copied us. They yeah. thought that we had copied them until we saw each other's products and we talked to each other and we said, oh my God, parallel development. Well, okay, so we've got a competitor in a market where we thought we were only going to be on our own. What their view of life was was quite different to ours. There wasn't, there's no such thing as fair competition. You know, if you're a big tech company backed by Silicon Valley, your job is to be the last man standing. You crush the competition, squash everybody, squash everybody yeah. own the market, and you know. So, and it, and they they told us this on a phone call with their lawyers. Um, uh, the president of the company said, Richard, look, we know that um, that your product doesn't imitate ours. It, the, the patents are different to ours. But we just don't want you selling in America. It's our territory. And, you know, we've got a lot of money. So you won't be able to compete with us. We will fight you. We'll put you through the courts and we'll tie you up you, you, and your company will go bust. And they did it as matter-of-factly as that. And so I sat back and couldn't help but instantly think, that's that's wrong, that's unfair, I don't care, mm. I'm going to fight. So we fought. And after three years, um, we, we won. And after a further 12 months, they went bust and they lost all of the $275 million, not because of our lawsuit, just because mm. they their gung-ho attitude and we're going to be the biggest, we're going to be the best, they threw money at everything and wasted a lot of money. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That's yeah, that kind of I suppose bully board approach. But I think what's more interesting about that is that concept of a lean startup. Sometimes if you start with funding, you just burn it. Start lean. Yes, and it can make a hell of a difference. Yeah, can't it? If we'd have had their sort of cash, I, I would hope and believe that we would be a billion dollar business um, yeah. for sure. Because we wouldn't, you know, we we believe in, you know, not everything has to have huge cash burn before it gets yeah. into profit. And, you know, I think that was what they lacked. They lacked people with commercial nerves and they lacked people from the industry. So 16 years in the industry, what keeps you hungry, passionate about wow stuff as a business and the industry? First reaction has got to be finding the next big thing, you know, the next big thing in toys. Okay. And, and, and actually, I think, We've got a project that we're working on at the moment, and it's with technology. And it could be, we believe, it, not only will it be the next big thing in toys and collectibles, but we think it will be a, 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 it's a horrible phrase sometimes because it's so overused, but a game changer in commerce. Um, so we have a business that we call, or the start of a business we call the Immersiverse. Um, so it's in the metaverse. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a project we've been working on actually for 10 years. It's our, old, our longest, um, uh, the, the project that we've worked on off and on the longest of any other toy creation. In fact, probably all of the toy creations we've had combined. And we nearly did do a deal with um, uh, a company called Hasbro, one of the major toy companies okay. yeah. um, uh, with the CEO um, president there. And, but God bless his soul, he, he passed away a couple of years ago, uh, or a year ago, I should say. Um, but it nearly it nearly came to life then. But we've now, uh, all the rights are with us and we will be bringing that out. So, yeah, it's living for the next big thing. Not living, it's the excitement, the drive, the energy comes from thinking, from believing that we will create that next big mega toy. Brilliant. Watch this space, listeners. Um just would it be um it'd be remiss of me not to ask this so i understand you're on the secret millionaire at some point uh, over the years what was your experience of going on the show uh nothing but good really um i i, I was very hesitant it, that came about it's a sunday evening i was at home 2010 so i'd recovered from my accident and i was uh, backfiring on all cylinders and uh, enjoying life again gone back to karate uh, business was going well we were a virgin fast track 100 the growth of the wow stuff company and it was a sunday evening and i was watching dragon's den and my wife just turned to me and said would you ever consider doing a show going on a show like that like dragon's den and i said no no no, not 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 that, but I, the one I do like, and it was hot at the time. The one I do love watching, I said, was and, and wouldn't mind being on if the opportunity arose. Would be um, Secret Millionaire, Channel Four Secret Millionaire. But it was all very glib. It was very, you know, flippant, flippant so very, yeah, off the cuff, yeah, life, very yeah. much, very much. I mean, you know, it was like a thirty-second conversation tops. Wife never thought anything more of it. The next day. I get an email from the producers saying, would you like to appear on, Ch on Channel 4's Secret Millionaire? And I couldn't believe it. You know, you talk about serendipity. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a wind-up. 
And I wrote to yeah. them and I said, is this a wind-up? No, it isn't. This is. <laughs> so I got home. And I said to Cass, you're not going to believe this. Um, they've asked me to be on. And she said, oh, that, that's amazing. I don't know whether she really believed it. So I went back to them the following day, having told my wife, and said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to have a look at it. You know, can you tell me more about it? So, But I think I, I, I would, would like to do it. Got back home, told my wife that I'd ex- that, um, effectively said yes. She said, no, we don't want any attention like that. We don't, we don't want to be on it. Absolutely no way. So the following day, I went back and said, I'm so sorry. Um, no, we, we won't be doing it. Got back home, told my wife. She said, no, no, if you want to do it, if you really, really want to do it. <laughs> so I ended up doing it. And it, it was a, a tremendous experience. Um, I was worried that is it going to be a show that, that as much as I haven't seen a show in a negative light before, but but if you didn't come across well or you weren't the genuine thing or you or, or something wasn't yeah. quite right, would they paint you out to be um, that ogre or, you know, or... or you know, I don't know how you don't know how you come across always. So would I come across, you know, not as a, a decent person, and you know, and, and therefore would that affect my life? You know, so yeah. Um, but it but it was a great experience. We helped people, and um, it was very very fulfilling. And yeah, that was yeah twelve years. Brilliant. Ago. So I've got two final questions: one on leadership, and then one on success. So the first one on kind of leadership would be. How would you describe your style of leadership and how has it changed over the years, Richard? Um, probably overall collaborative, but I suppose it depends. My leadership of, of, of the business and how I lead depends on the circumstances at that time because sometimes you need to be the tough leader and mm. make firm decisions that are not necessarily the decisions that people want to hear. But other times you you need to know that you don't know everything and need to get advice and direction from others and, and accept that they might be making the better calls and go with that. So my leadership style is like a word we used earlier on, is adaptive, I suppose. It's that situational leadership kind of style, yeah. isn't it then? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So very final question. One I always end with. So what does success mean to you, Richard? Oh, um, I remember when I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was 19 years old and was walking into work in my hometown, Wolverhampton. I'd left school with no O-levels to speak of, no, you know, no, no good grades. And I didn't get my A-levels. Wasn't going to university, needed a job because I got my first job walking into work. And I was wearing a, a very cheap suit. Um, but I came from a very modest background and so we didn't have much money. And but you know, it was a it was a decent suit, but cheap suit. And it, it had been it had been snowing, and I remember that the slush on the ground had turned black with the you know the lorries and the, the buses and the cars. Um, and I'd got off the bus and I walked straight into a big pool of this this horrible slush. And, and about six, eight inches at the bottom of my trouser legs it just turned black. It was a grey, light grey suit. Anyway, carried on walking to work, and a Bentley pulled up alongside me. Guy wound the window down. He said, you're Richard. That's right. Yeah, you work for me, don't you? 
Oh, oh yeah, it's my company um, that you work for. Oh, yeah, jump in. I'll give you a lift to the rest of the way. And it was only about another five, 600 yards. I remember looking down in the footwell on his pure cream white lamb's wool carpets <laughs> and seeing that slush, black slush, drip all over it and thinking, I've only been working here a few weeks. I'm going to get fired. <laughs> <laughs> and and because he, he didn't fire me and he was a wonderful man very charismatic and a brilliant product ideas person and he was a big inspiration and as I got out of the car and I went into work and he hadn't fired me that day I thought I want to be like him one day I want my own mm-hmm. I want my own company and it was it wasn't so much just because he got the the riches that, that went with being a successful entrepreneur it was also because he got that freedom and he he was clearly enjoying life and he was you know, and, and I saw him so many times coming up with these ideas that, that energized him and that, that kind of got instilled into me. And so when we come up with new great ideas, it energizes me and I thought, that's what I want to do. So success, what does it look like? I, I don't think, I hope I never reach a point where I think that's it, I'm now successful. I hope there's always something else to keep going for. Uh, I hope I can help other people um so this would all be part of still a continuing journey so i don't think there'll be an arrival brilliant i love that great answer great answer richard i've loved having you on the guest if people want to learn more about you more about wow stuff where can they go uh wowstuff.com um is probably the best place it gives a little bit about our history tells us a little bit about the business or linkedin you can see me on linkedin I'm, i send out posts quite quite regularly as we know, hence <laughs> why you're a guest. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Brilliant. I've loved our conversation. Thanks for speaking with such openness and honesty. And yeah, just, you know, some great lessons there that you've shared with our listeners. So thank you, Richard. Very kind. Thank you. Man. Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us by rating, reviewing and subscribing. We really value your feedback and would love to have you along for future episodes. And please don't forget to learn more about Evolve by going to evolvemembers.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week.